everyone. This is the Crime Cafe, where you get to hear from the best and the brightest crime, suspense, and thriller authors in the business. And I'm your host, Debbie Mack. Before I introduce my guest for this week, I'd like to remind you that you can get the Crime Cafe Season 1 Story Package with stories from all the authors interviewed here at Crime Cafe for only 99 cents if you go to my website, debbiemack.com or crimecafe.net and click on the words Crime Cafe. It'll be there along with a place where you can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, tote bags, and other Crime Cafe merchandise. So with that out of the way, I'd like to introduce a really great writer, Kenneth Wishnia, or Ken Wishnia, as I call him. (laughs) Ken is the author of a series that I really love, the Philomena Buscarcella series. I hope I'm saying that right. (laughs) He also wrote a really great novel called The Fifth Servant, and his latest project is Jewish Noir, a book that he edited. So Ken, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it because, you know, as a writer, we know better than anybody that there are 10,000 books you could have been talking about. So I really appreciate that you chose Jewish Noir to talk about. Uh, It's nice to get the attention. As it well deserves it. Um, I've been reading some of the stories and they're great. Um, How did you get involved with editing it? Yeah, everyone else backed out. Now, um, uh, it was actually, the idea was originally posed by Reed Coleman uh, several years ago. Reed Farrell Coleman is, of course, uh, author of the Mo Prager series, three-time Seamus Award winner, and now he's uh, incarnating Robert B. Parker's Jesse Stone series. And uh, he is a frequent visitor to my English classes at Southern County Community College on Long Island, and uh where, where they really love him there. And, and just one day we were talking, and he was kind of talking about the Akashic series of noirs, saying, uh, sure, they've got Twin Cities noir. You know, everybody's got a noir place now, but he sort of felt like Jewish noir. That's the thing. And you know, the idea struck me, and we kind of batted it around for several years until sort of the moment seemed right. I mean, I finished a novel and had some time, and you know, he, he had some time, and... Uh, we pitched it around, uh, and, uh, and and eventually he signed that contract with Putnam to be Robert B. Barker's uh, spirit medium, mm-hmm. and it included a sort of no competition clause of some kind, uh, and uh, so he had to back out of actually co-editing, and uh, which I thought was a little strange. It's like really Putnam, you know, <laughs> Times bestseller uh, series. There, they, they really think a. You know, co-editing an anthology from a small press constitutes competition. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> just one of those, yeah, but, you know, just one of those things. Yeah, we don't want don't to mess up this deal. So, you know, he hit it back out of editing it, and it ended up just being me. And um, so uh, I guess, you know, one of the things I was aiming for was uh, to go farther afield and not choose the usual suspects and, among other things, uh, you know, to, to choose some some lesser-known authors from around the, a little bit around the world, from Canada, um, but also uh, especially several authors who I feel are, you know, emerging. I mean, they, they may have a couple of books, but, you know, they're not, not big names, and yet I think they wrote terrific stories for us. Um, 
like Travis Richardson, for example, is in here, and, uh, and Jedediah Ayers, who, of course, contributed an absolutely insane piece of mayhem, um, and uh, Rabbi Adam Fisher. So, you know, I knew we had to have a rabbi in, in Jewish noir. So, so, yeah, you know, he's certainly someone who is absolutely not known in the field of crime. And, of course, his story doesn't actually have what would be typically called a crime, but we, mm-hmm. you know, his story is definitely funny and sad at the same time, and I believe does fit a type of noir. Yes. Noir fiction is a little bit different from crime fiction, I would think. You can have a crime, but it can be without a crime. Well, that was something certainly I was going for here. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm sure your listeners will be well aware of this. Uh, practically every gig we've done, someone asks, so what's your definition of noir? And, you know, uh-huh. You know, oh, God. You know, people don't get this in, in romance. Uh, and no one says, so what's your definition of romance? I know. But, but for whatever reason, yeah, no, or even hard-boiled, really, uh, you know, or, or, or cozy or something, unless it's really to a crowd who's not familiar with crime fiction. But yeah, what is, something about noir, and maybe you have your own ideas, like why on earth do people always want a definition? So, um, I mean, one of the things we went for is definitely broadening it, because uh, Reed's, Reed's uh, quote about this is, Jewish noir is the most redundant title in literature. Uh, I was just going to say. <laughs> yeah, his, you know, his feeling is like, you know, the Jewish experience is noir. You know, if you're Jewish and you're, or you're writing about Jewish themes, it's inherently noir. Um, but to give you an example, uh, you know, I had a couple of authors, especially the ones who've won literary prizes, as, some, as well as crime fiction prizes, um, like uh, Canada's uh, Nancy Rickler, um First of all, uh, S.J. Roseanne recommended her, so of course I thought, yeah, sure, and I, I emailed her in, in Canada, and she actually emailed back saying, my father just died, I, I can't possibly think about writing anything right now, so of course I emailed back saying, I understand completely, I'm sorry to hear that, you know, I hope, uh, you know, wishing you a speedy recovery kind of thing, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and um, you know, went on to deal with other things, and about eight months later, you know, out of nowhere I got an email from her with a story attached where she said, I finally sat down to just let out some feelings and something unfroze inside of me. And this story came out. And uh, what she did was she, she changed the gender, so it's a male character, but basically, yes, his father has just died. And one of the main plot threads is he's trying to come up with the eulogy because he's supposed to give the eulogy and he keeps having these false starts. You know, he comes up with a sentence and says, oh, that doesn't work. And you know, So, you know, clearly, uh, you know, spoken and unspoken, he's saying you cannot sum up a man's life in a few words. Um, and, you know, I thought it was a you know, very powerful and moving story. And then, but, you know, she was very hesitant about you know, submitting it and, and then maybe reworking it, saying, well, you know, it's not really noir. You know, there's no crime in it. And, uh, you know, I said, you are writing about the inevitability and finality of death, uh, the lack of closure, because we Americans love to talk about closure, but really, when a parent dies, nothing's ever going to fill that gap. You know? Exactly. You, you, know, you know, the pain might go away, but, you know, there's not really anything like closure. And, you know, the inability or the inadequacy of words to fill that gap or, you know, make us feel better. So I said, you know, that's plenty noir. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there doesn't have to be 
a detective who is betrayed by a femme fatale. Though, you know, I certainly love those those, those classic uh, genre tropes. Um, but a movie like DOA, for instance, right, I mean, has the oh, same yeah. sort of theme, the inevitability of death. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think, you know, for people who are actually looking for sort of, yeah, you know, very classic uh, film noir type uh, plot lines, you know, mm-hmm. you know they're, they're not necessarily going to find that here. But there is a whole section of, uh, of authors who are, I would call them unapologetically genre, you know, just totally, totally taking it on. I think uh, Charles Ardai is a great one mm-hmm. uh, where I've told him, you know, it, it's just like a classic B-movie from monogram pictures of allied artists. You know, it doesn't have any highfalutin literary aspirations, but damn, does it slam me in the face on the first page. <laughs> and, and it accomplishes exactly what it sets out to do. Uh, you know, Gary Phillips has got one that I, you know, I, I told him, uh, you know, no paranormal stuff. Let's, let's just let's go for that uh, tough urban Gary Phillips. Uh, we managed to get Eddie Muller to send us one, you know, the czar of Noor himself, uh, you know, and, and the film Noir Preservationist. So he's got a film Noir story here. It's probably the closest one. Uh, so, you know, we do have a number of authors where, yes, they, they deliver uh, that, that experience. Um, and actually, Jedediah Ayers' story is called Twisted Shiksa. And I, when he emailed me that, I said, you, you, you had me at the title. Uh, whatever story goes with that, uh, running with. But, you know, again, to give you another example of a not the usual suspect is uh, Tasha Kaminsky, who actually, it turns out, this will be or is her first professionally published story in the U.S. And uh, she did not put it in his bio, in her bio, but she announced it when we did a gig at the Houston JCC together a couple of weeks ago that um, she's actually Stuart Kaminsky's daughter, you know, MWA Grandmaster Stuart Kaminsky. And, uh, you know, uh, let's just say, uh, you know, Stuart was nice to me and supportive, and I just felt like uh, it would be good karma to, uh, you know, invite his daughter to submit because I knew she was a creative writer and had some, uh, some work to her credit. And, uh, you know, she too submitted something that I, I think is, you know, absolutely, you know, not the usual suspect type work. And, and, but she too also felt like, you know, I'm not really a noir writer. You know, there's no, I don't know how to deal with a murder mystery. And I told her, you know, your story is about a young woman who is clearly from a very traditional Jewish background and who feels complete disaffection for and alienation from the community she's supposed to be a part of. You, know, you don't get more noir than that. Mm. Um, you know, even though, yeah, the, you know, the character is not, you know, there's no expressionistic shadows or, you know, femme fatales betraying uh, returning World War II vets or something. Though, again, you know, I certainly love those classic scenarios. So yeah. in that sense, yeah, you know, we're going farther afield. Well, it sounds like you have a diverse collection of stories. Oh, yes. From writers around the world, you said? Yeah, well, I mean, U.S. and Canada. U.S. and Canada. Um, around the continent. <laughs> uh, and, and one story that's being translated, that I've translated from Yiddish, that was first published in the Fovert's 
uh, in Yiddish in 1912. So you could kind of count that as Russia a little bit. You know, a Russian immigrant uh, writing in Yiddish in the forwards a hundred years ago. That, that counts as a foreign country at this point, I would say. Um, but yes. Uh, so. Well, it sounds really cool. Um, tell me a little bit about the... Let's talk about The Fifth Servant. Uh, I remember you wrote that one after many years of research, I believe. Oh, yes. It was a very special book for you. I'd like you to talk about it a little bit and what prompted you to write it. Sure. Well, I mean, it sort of reflects my my uh, autobiographical trajectory as well. I always tell people uh, marrying a Catholic got me interested in Judaic studies. Um, mm. I, my, my family was, you know, sort of, totally assimilated, uh, you know, second and third generation American Jews, which meant that, you know, the primary expressions of Jewish culture in my family were bagels and Woody Allen movies, <laughs> um, you know, which is not a bad start, you know, not you can go pretty far with that. Um, but, you know, absolutely no religious training and that sort of thing. And, you know, when I was about to marry into a family of, uh, you know, devout practicing Catholics, I said, okay, I'm going to learn something about her culture. I'm going to read the New Testament. And I'm reading this thing on a bus to New Jersey, because that's where she lived at the time. And I'm reading it, and I had what I always call a reverse revelation. You know, Christians love to talk about the revelation. And and, and I I read this and said, I know all this stuff. I mean, like, every uh, event of significance in the life of Jesus and his most important words and speeches, I knew them all, Uh, you know, by virtue of growing up in the United States. Um, you know, I can say a complete Our Father. <laughs> um, never said one in church, you know, as a prayer, but I know the words to it because I've heard them so many times. And I just sort of realized, you know, God, I might as well be Christian. You know, I don't know my own cultural background. Um, so before I moved to Ecuador to get married and live in Ecuador for several years, uh, I actually went to one of those, uh, you know, Jewish religious shops that used to dot the Lower East Side of Manhattan and now are in, you know, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and stuff, um, and you know, told the guy I want a Hebrew Bible, you know, parallel text, Hebrew and English, and uh, I moved to Ecuador and got married and would accompany my wife to Mass every Sunday, because we were just married, and there was nothing else to do in this small city in the mountains of Ecuador, and, you know, I'd sit there reading my Hebrew Bible, and, you know, that's sort of when it started, and that was 30 years ago, practically. Um, but, you know, the same trajectory is followed in my crime fiction. Uh, you know, I married a Latina from Ecuador and then went to live there for three years. And, you know, it was such an exotic and different world and experience for me that I, I mined that for the material for, you know, five novels and a half a dozen short stories. Um, so, you know, obviously it was a very rich experience for me doing this, uh, and that's the Philomena Buscarcella series. He did a great job pronouncing it right. Most people do not get it right. <laughs> so that was good. Um, <laughs> uh, um, I'm impressed. And so kind of the same thing, you know. I, you know and then, uh, you know, I gradually felt like, hmm, you know, I'd like to do a Jewish-themed one and, uh, and uh, you know, try that, my hand at that. You know, I, I've, I've done this. You know, my Philomena is an Ecuadorian Catholic, and she's devout and goes to Mass every week and that sort of thing. Um, and at first, you know, when I was still writing the series, my agent at the time said, yeah, well, your next contract's going to be for more Philomena, so that's what you're doing. And so, mm-hmm. okay. So I, I did the, we had a two-book contract, and I did those. And then she said, okay, now's the time. And, 
so, you know, I, I really had to immerse myself in this because I was not given a religious training. And, you know, the, the fifth servant takes place in the 16th century. Uh, so these characters in 16th century Prague, which was the largest Jewish community in Europe at the time. So that's the place. And, of course, in the late 16th century, it's the home of Rabbi Judah Lowe, of the Golem Legends. And, uh, you know, one of the things was I knew that, well, these guys would have had the Bible memorized at age 10 or so, and then mm-hmm. moved on to the Mishnah and the Talmud, and they would have known this stuff backwards and forwards. So, yeah, I had to do a, a ton of, uh, you know, sort of Judaic and, and religious research, and, uh, you know, without having any background. And I guess I did enough of a job because... Uh, you know, when I was submitting the manuscript, I, I got responses saying, well, you're obviously a Talmudic scholar. And, <laughs> uh, and you know, spoke to some, uh, you know, when the book came out, spoke to some Jewish reading groups where, you know, they were actually, yeah, study groups that met in synagogue basements. And, you know, they actually were sort of astonishing, like, we've been studying this stuff for years. How did you <laughs> learn this? I was like, yeah, on my own, just doing the research. Um which, incidentally, the, the, the Talmud does say you should only study in groups. Um, so anyone who studies this stuff by himself is a fool. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I had no choice. I have a day job and an autistic son, and there was no way I was going to be able to spend years going to study groups. I mean, I had to do it on my own and just, you know, immerse in the text. And also do comparative history. I had to do Czech history, German history, you know, Western general, Western European history. And... Uh, that ties into something I'm working on right now. I'm uh, my current novel in progress, uh, which has been interrupted by the Jewish noir madness, uh, uh, is another Jewish themed historical, and the idea is a parallel story, modern and ancient, and the ancient part is the sixth century BC. So um, I had to do even more research for that one because. Basically, I'm taking on the biblical era, so I feel like I'd better know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really annoy people if I don't know what I'm talking about. And uh, I'll annoy them anyway. But, uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, and then that, that involved uh, immersing myself in, you know, reading uh, the first five books of the Bible, the book of Moses, you know, which is the Torah, uh, with like eight different commentaries from, from ultra-Orthodox all the way to, you know, modern feminist revisionist uh one one place where i tell my wife you know catholics do have to catch up is you know we actually have sort of like feminist conservative jewish rabbis writing about this Mm -hmm. come on you know get with it oh the catholics can catch up in a lot of areas um yeah i'm just saying uh i won't get into the politics of it (laughs) so yes but um well, you know, it's just, I'm allowed to say it because basically, hey, you Christians rule the world, you know. I'm not a Christian. <laughs> you know, you, you took over, you, had, you know, you had this great act, you know, you, and you took it and played the world, and, you know, so so I get to say, hey, you know, but we're ahead of you in this, ha, ha, you know. Um, we get to do that. Um, so anyway, yes, uh, I, I've been very much immersed in this, and so, um, so it's, it's entirely appropriate that the Jewish noir come out. And uh, I must say, I'm actually uh, pleasantly surprised that Jewish noir is actually getting more attention than anything I've done in years. Uh, you know, it's, it's fantastic. We, we did like 20 gigs in the last three weeks. I've logged more than 15,000 miles touring for this thing. I'm only just recovering. 
And um, yeah, I mean, you know, people are saying like they've seen us in the display window at Shakespeare and Company next to Gloria Steinem and Patti Smith. Um, so, you know, for whatever reason, something about Jewish noir is definitely grabbing attention. In fact, we've already received one uh, nomination, one suspense magazine nomination for Best Anthology of 2015. So that's a great kickoff to what I hope are several more recognition. That would be nice. Oh, you should. I mean, your books are great. And The Fifth Servant was just spectacular. I loved it. And uh, I, ha- I hadn't a clue, you know, how I was going to feel about it since I didn't know how I would relate to a, um, a very, very old, ancient story about uh, the Jewish culture, you know. I didn't know if I would, it would resonate with me or what, but it was totally uh, um, gripping. <laughs> I hate to use that word, but that's what it was. I mean, impressive. And... Um, and as for the Jewish noir, I'm enjoying the stories thoroughly. Well, it was really hard for me to get, yeah, the world of 16th century Prague down on paper. Yes, yes, I can imagine. One of the things, one of the things I was going for was kind of this sense of uh, pervasive doom. <laughs> we may be walking the streets and breathing the air now, but you know, any minute they could come for us. Exactly. Uh, you know, sort of in there, and I think sort of that's some of what Reed was talking about. Uh, you know, when he says Jewish noir is redundant, and you know, even though all the stories in the collection are you know 20th and 21st century, uh, you know, no, his, you know, no historical pieces uh, per se. Although, you know, okay, they go back to the early 20th century, um, but it's still there. Act mm-hmm. uh, oddly enough, I did not expect this, but you know, three of the authors submitted stories about like being bullied for being Jewish in you know post-war American suburbia. Wow. Uh, that, you know, again, you would think it, it kind of has parallels with the, you know, the original noir sequence because, you know, the post-war era is very paradoxical. On the one hand, everything's looking up in some ways. Hey, we won the war. You know, mm-hmm. we have become this global power. We're no longer just a you know, continental power or global power. And, and jobs pay really well, you know, because we're exporting our industry around the world and, and all of that stuff. And yet it's also the Cold War and fear of you know, nuclear annihilation and, uh, you know, the McCarthy era, you know, persecuting people for just having left-wing thoughts and ideas. And, of course, women were expected to stay home and go slowly crazy uh, with boredom. And, you know, gays were in the closet and, you know, blacks might be beaten half to death or lynched for trying to vote in the South. So, you know, you have this paradox. There's a reason the noir period comes out of that, that it's, on the one hand, and, of course, the greatest economic expansion in U.S. history is post-World War II. So, you know, it should be sunny. You know, it's, it's morning in America, and yet there's all this dark side to that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was, it was really curious. I, I did not expect three people to write about that. Uh, but, you know, there's that other dark side. Oh, post-war suburbia is supposed to be this symbol of, you know, American progress and freedom and that sort of thing. And yet, uh, you know, several people wrote about the prejudice that exists, and, and and also, I'm not not spoiling anything by saying, and they fantasize about taking violent revenge. On oh, um, so yeah, there's, there's definitely some uh, uh, catharsis in some of these stories here, um, and you know, uh, well, I, I appreciate your your 
kind words about the Fifth Sermon because, of course, like so many writers uh, out there, I think uh, you know there's a lot of really great work that just didn't quite break through. You know, didn't 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 get the attention, didn't get quite get the publicity, and that's one of the reasons you know I felt so strongly about doing that with this collection. Uh, when I say not the usual suspects, um, you know, there are a number of authors where exactly that. I feel like their work is really terrific, and not enough people know them, and you know, so that's why uh, I invited them in here. And uh, so, yeah, uh, and I've already been deluged with, with comments about sort of, okay, when's Jewish more two coming and why didn't you invite me? And it's sort of like, okay, first of all, it, you know, it filled up in a second and went way over budget. It was supposed to be 15 to 20 people. It's 32 contributors. Um, and it's, an unbelievable amount of work, uh, you know, and time and effort uh, and money, you know, uh, in terms of traveling around all over the place. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm certainly tantalized by, uh, you know, yes, you know, Jewish more too, uh, but I'm, the last thing I want to do right now is that I've got, you know, I've still got to, I'm, we're still doing the publicity for Jewish noir and, you know, waiting to ride through that cycle and I've got my own novel in progress. I've got to finish or my agent will kill me. I mean, <laughs> she will kill me if I stop work on my current novel in progress to do anything as insane as Jewish noir 2 right now. But I've also got you know, some real tantalizing uh, hints from some of the authors who were too committed uh, with other things to to submit stories to Jewish noir who have said, well, you know, Jewish noir too. So we shall see. But yeah, let's got a few other things to survive first. One day at a time. Yes. Okay, I, uh, I'm going to have to wrap up soon. But before I do, I simply have to ask you, I, have, I want to tell you that I've always been impressed by the fact that you were a self-published author in the pre-Kindle days. Sure. So you can talk, can you talk a little bit about what it was like to uh, publish your hard-boiled mysteries before it became so quote-unquote easy? <laughs> yes, I know, don't know. The world has definitely changed. Um, so you were talking about my first novel, 23 Shades of Black, was... Uh, rejected by agents and editors for nine years before I gave up on the notion of commercial publication, self-published, and it was nominated for the Edgar Allan Poe Award and the Anthony Award. So, so yeah, I've got my asterisk next to my name in the record books for, for that. And I'll just say it's not something I, I entered into lightly. I really did try several rounds of submissions and, you know, uh, tried to do it right, you know, queried people who I knew, published things that I thought you know, would appeal to the same audience, uh, you know, and, and only send manuscript in response to request for manuscript. And, uh, you know, every now and then someone said, you know, after sending them the first three chapters, said, okay, send the rest. And, uh, you know, this was the late 1980s. Uh, mm -hmm. That was quite some time ago. And, uh, you know, I'll just say the rejection letters got nicer, you know, as the years went by. I know what that's like. <laughs> so, yeah, yes, you do. And, you know, because I had polished the work a bit, and I was, you know, more specific in targeting who I was writing to. But, um, yeah, around 1995, 96, I just finally gave up. And, uh, you know, I mean, at that point, yeah, you actually had to publish a real book. 
and uh, I actually went to the small press center in Manhattan to learn about how to do that. And it was like advice such as you need to print the title and your name on the spine. You know? <laughs> uh, you know, most books are displayed spine. I'm like, oh, you know, writing this stuff down. Like, oh, you know, have a barcode, have a price. Just look professional. And, um, and you know, it just uh, it wasn't something I entered into lightly. But as I say, after nine years, I just gave up on the notion because I really did feel... Um, you know, again, you and your listeners might relate that, you know, you send out a manuscript and everyone's looking like they take out their pen, you know, or their blue pencil and like start marking things that, that they don't think are right or whatever. And I just felt like, all right, I just need to make this a book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'll read it. You won't, you won't take out your pen. You'll either read it or you won't. And, uh, yeah, at the time, you know, at the time, yes, I actually had to do desktop publishing, you know, p- p- prepare laser ready you know camera ready laser printed stuff um print it myself and i actually did go through the motions of okay you know sending it out to the pre-publication sources i I made my own arcs uh you know sent them out to you know booklist and all the others and in fact booklist reviewed it um you know, some somehow somebody pulled it from the pile and maybe read a few sentences and said, "Geez," and uh, you know, so we got a we you know we had a legitimate review in Booklist. So when it was time to actually bind the book, uh, you know, I was able to put a real review from Booklist on it, and uh, you know, I sent that out to the Edgar Allan Poe Committee, and you know, uh, you know, it was clearly a book from a small press, but. Um, it wasn't obviously self-published. Mm-hmm. I, I did not know that there was a rule against self-published <laughs> authors at the time. But I, I, you know, it, it was just sort of pragmatic, like, oh, you know, they won't pay it any mind if they think it's self-published. But, you know, it was also, well, my goal was to look professional for any market, and this exactly. was the book. And, uh, you know, as I say, it was clearly a small press book, but again, you know, we had that book list review, and so we had a genuine blurb, and... I, I guess I'll just say that, uh, you know, the strength of the work worked for us and that, you know, Booklist actually reviewed it. You know, then the key thing is distribution. What do you do? Okay, you've printed 2,000 books. Uh, you know, they're sitting in your basement. Um, and actually, uh, independent publishers group that actually distributes PM Press, which is publishing Jewish Noir. So, you know, uh, independent publishers group, you know, actually called me up. And, you know, the guy said, this is self-published, isn't it? You know, like, at the time, I was so naive. Like, how could you tell? You know? <laughs> and, and, you know, he's like, well, you're a one-book publisher I've never heard of. So, you know, um, but then he said, I think you have a shot with this. You know, we don't normally distribute self-published stuff, but I think this is good enough. So, you know, there's a lesson there, you know, that, uh, you know, if you sort of, you can break the rules if somehow you've got something that if someone would just open it and start reading it. Exactly. You know, realize it. And I just, you know, I, you know, I'm very sensitive to that. I mean, I, I uh, gee, the last trip, we did a bunch of gigs in the Bay Area, and I brought four books with me, two to read on the plane out and two to read on the plane back, some with considerable hype, and you know, not one of them really impressed me uh, on the way to... Houston. I was, uh, actually, I'm reading House of Sand and Fog by Andre Debus the Third, and that one's impressing me. I'm like, okay, there you go. Here, here's a here's a great book, mm-hmm. um, and it's actually you know a of empathy with you know really good writers who just uh, you know haven't broken through in that way. And again, as I say, it's uh, a number of the authors I selected for for this were, were for that reason as well. Mm. Um, so there you have it. Well, that's excellent, and uh, 
thank you for talking about that because um, like I said I've always been very impressed with uh, not only your um, your work but your let's say marketing acumen uh, and, and, and your compassion for others who are in the position of trying to break through um, it's it's a tough world publishing and uh, you've done you've done very well as an author I think you've done extremely well and I wish you the best of luck with Jewish noir and all your books so um, I mean I think I've you know it's sort of like I seem to remember some oh I can't remember now but one of uh, a female pop artist who uh, who sort of you know somebody asked like you know because you know she sort of like has a very devoted but a following but it's not in the millions and millions and mm -hmm. some reporter asked her you know you know how do you feel about you know not being that successful and you know her answer was i am successful i've you know made you know, several great albums i just don't sell that <laughs> exactly that's where i am how do you like, define oh, you know, success you. yeah it's like no i thank you yes i, I think i've written you know, masterful novels but uh, yeah i'm not quitting the day job any time soon and uh, as we all know, this is plenty of stuff that sells in the millions that, you know, some of us read and go, eh. Exactly. So, yes. It's a strange world that way. Okay, so again, thank you for uh, giving us your time and letting the world know about Jewish noir and my other stuff. Well, it was my pleasure, and thank you for being here. Take care. So, um, until next time, I just want to remind everybody that... The Crime Cafe has a website where you can buy the 99 cent story package of first season stories from all the authors who appear on the Crime Cafe. Just go to debbiemack.com or crimecafe.net and click on Crime Cafe. Thank you very much for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks.